This is Bach to Bach, the podcast opening up the world of classical music, one beer at a time. And today, it's all about innovation and intonation. exciting episode ahead yeah so it's really rare that you get to interview your high school friend slash rival for your podcast and in a field where it applies to her more than it applies to you i'm jealous i, I never had a rival growing up in high school I, I i wish i did no it was it was a good rival we were close buddies throughout high school and then but uh she's gone on to do some incredible things in the classical world as yeah, conductor absolutely um, so we're talking about the one and only lydia yankovskaya yes that's her birth name and yes it's amazing yeah um, and so she's really has made some huge strides and made such a career for herself uh, over the past 10 years as a conductor. And so we got to speak with her about, you know, the rise and falls of being a female conductor in the classical realm. And then also just, you know, her whole path of getting there. Yep. And uh, just as exciting what she's got on the horizon for the future, both for her own ensembles and the future of classical music, which uh, it, it, it's these dynamic personalities that really help drive the genre to where we hope to see it be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And as important as the future is, we're going to come back and talk about our kind of our beginning hometown uh, where Maddie, Lydia, and I all went to high school of Guildhall, New York. And right outside is Troy, New York, which most of you will know as the birthplace of Uncle Sam. And if you didn't know that, now you do. You and you can't unlearn that. You can't. And so <laughs> you can, <laughs> you can, and there's there's things for that. Anyway, um, yeah, Brown's Brewing Company. We've featured them once before. We've featured another brewery from Troy uh, in our our first New Year's episode. That was Rare Form Brewery. We got to speak with another Kevin there. Um, and Brown's is, has been around on the on the Hudson River there for 24 years. They have seen the rise and fall of a load of different styles. They are not new to craft beer. And we've got a double IPA that we tried out. And this one's, it's different. And the, the, the name will all come back around for a bit of theme. So in the meantime, let's listen to our interview with Lydia Yankovskaya. And then let's dive into some beer. Lydia Yankovskaya, we have been good friends now. This is going on almost almost 20 years. Which yeah. is really weird wow. <laughs> Uh, we go back to going to school together at Gilbert High School. Farnsworth Middle. Farnsworth Middle. Um, and so we met as musicians together uh, in class, but you started off as a pianist, correct? Yes, that was my first instrument and my primary instrument for a long time. And when did, when did you start that? How old were you? So I started playing piano when I was about five or six. Um, and around the same time, I started also singing in choruses. So I guess um, in some ways, singing started at the same time as piano, but about five or six. And, and why did you pick piano at five or six? Do you know, is there a story behind it? or? That's a good question. I, we had a piano at home, and I think that was one of the things that inspired me. Uh, because when you have an instrument around as a small kid, you try to play it, and you kind of try to figure out how to do it. And Eventually, I think my mom thought, well, if I'm already trying to play it on my own, I should get some lessons. And so I started <laughs> taking lessons. And so, so, so fast forward from five years old, and now we are in high school at Gilbert High School together. 
Um, I always say this, especially when it came to our senior superlatives, like you were my musical rival. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is it true? Yeah. Yeah, we pretty much were. I think like we were, we were. She was. You were my basically like my the the counterpart as far as like musical involvement. But um, you, what made you want to go pursue music past high school? It's a good question, and you know, I wasn't totally sure that that's what I wanted to do. I knew that I wanted to pursue music, but I wasn't sure that I wanted to pursue it professionally, and certainly wasn't sure that conducting would end up being the path for me. That came as a surprise later on, although, as you know, I started conducting when we were still in school. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I looked at a number of conservatories, and I considered going the conservatory route, but one of the things that turned me off from going that direction is that I was really interested in all kinds of things, not just music. And I wanted to study philosophy, and I wanted to study the sciences, and I wanted to get a really thorough education and well-rounded education. Um, and so that was difficult for me. And piano at that point, as you said, was my primary instrument. So if I had gone into directly into music, I'm sure that I would have pursued piano performance. And I just knew that it wasn't quite for me. I, of course, continued to study piano in college, uh, but I didn't want to spend so much of my time alone in a practice room, learning a concerto that I may perform a couple of times. And that's, it's a very hard life to be a solo pianist. Does, does any part of you regret not going that route? Not at all. Not even a bit. And I've never looked back. I am uh, so glad that I ended up studying all sorts of things. And the only reason that I do what I do today is that I went a different direction. And you, how many years ago have you, did you meet your now husband, Dan? Oh, we met in college. We met in college. So we've been together a long time. Um, and he also used to perform a lot. Now now he's a, he's a lawyer, has a, a normal person job, so to speak. <laughs> uh, but we met a long time ago. And you guys have done a lot of lot of moves. Like, you guys have a lot of traveling, lot of traveling around. <laughs> city to city yeah. Around. So let's dive let's dive down that that path of your professional career as a conductor. Um, when did you really start becoming an active conductor, and when did you really try to become like basically making it a full time full time commitment? So as you know, I started conducting when we were still in school, and largely this was because we had some really fantastic teachers who encouraged those of us who were musically inclined to study some conducting. I think we even had some sort of after-school club yeah. uh, run by one of our teachers, uh, Kathleen Allender. Yeah, and yeah. then, yeah, <laughs> and then, um, when uh, we had this concerto competition, and I, I won as a pianist one year playing a Mozart concerto, and uh, Jeff Herkenroder, who was our orchestra conductor, encouraged me to lead rehearsals from the piano on a few occasions, and he saw that it seemed to come naturally to me. And he actually um, was telling us about some of the repertoire that we were doing at another concert, including a Dvorak symphony, and a movement of a Dvorak symphony. And he just said to me when he saw how excited I was about it, oh, do you want to conduct this? And I, you know, at that point, I had no idea that this was really something one could pursue or really that this was a viable career path. Um, I didn't have that many role models or people who encouraged me in that direction. And his encouraging me to do this uh, really is what made the difference because I, I studied a lot and I figured it out and I 
performed this movement of this Zorg activity. Um, and then I continued to study conducting and to run several ensembles when I was in college and went on to a conducting program in grad school and then just kept doing it from there. Was the rush of that first opportunity to conduct in any way similar to the, the Russian performance or was it a, a complete step away from that? Was it comparable at all? Oh, I, I think it was, it, I mean, it was very much like, uh, like what I do now. I, I wouldn't, I, I obviously at that point I just didn't know what I was getting into. Um, and it was an incredible amount of work, of course. But to me, the really great thing about conducting is being able to bring people together and to make music with others. And I was very lucky also that all of my peers, yourself among them, um, in the orchestra were extremely supportive and uh, worked with me and we really made the music happen. And it was so exciting to do that together at that point with my friends and um, the people I went to school with. And, and to listeners at home or wherever you may be listening to the podcast, we've touched on it briefly once before, but uh, we have to remind folks that conductors, while instrumentalists are looking at their own part and maybe the part of their stand partner, um, the conductors are looking at the entirety of the piece, every single part, and are mastering cues of, of, of every section, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's and, and I think on, on, on top of that, you know, as, as a conductor, you are focusing not only on what's on the page, but what the composer wants. Yeah. On top of that, the minutia, the, the, the nuances, the phrasing, there's so much that goes into every piece, and so this actually is a good, good segue into the first really major group you worked with that, that I think in your more recent career, and that was uh, Juventus the Music Ensemble in Boston. Yeah, and when I, I started Juventus when I was still in graduate school, I was still finishing graduate school, first uh, playing some, some piano for them, and then uh, serving as the associate conductor, music director, and eventually artistic director of the company. And it really was a wonderful opportunity to work with a professional, really high-level professional musicians who are specialists in new music and to delve into really complicated scores and situations where I was working directly with composers to bring music to life. Um, and I was lucky in general to end up in Boston for grad school because Boston has such a rich musical culture and there are five conservatories letting people out every single year and all of them just want to make music. So they're, in addition to the new music ensembles, the orchestras, there are some great opera companies um, that I delve into working with right away. And that was really amazing training uh, for the future. Do you feel that, like, as a grad student at the time, the performers you were working with, were they kind of at the same caliber of musicianship as you, or were they superior or not quite as refined? I think many of the people I worked with were, I felt, were musicians I had a great deal to learn from. And that is really what pushed me to become a better and better conductor. I think it's so much of a part of what we do as musicians is constantly learn and constantly improve. And as conductors in particular, I don't make any sound. I just wave my arms around, right? Um, my my job is to get others to perform their best and to bring them together in a way that creates something that works well cohesively. Um, and I was very fortunate in Boston. I, I went straight from college, and so I was quite young, and I worked with many really high-level professional musicians, and not just students, and often musicians who had experience working in top-level organizations all over the world. 
And that, of course, was really an incredible experience. Um, at one point, for instance, I was conducting Tchaikovsky's Yolanta with, um, and working at a, conducting a rehearsal with a small local opera company. And one of the guys singing the leading roles had sung it at the Bolshoi and had done it over 20 times, including wow. once in Italian. So just having that experience of uh, doing that opera, for instance, for the first time with people who have this kind of depth of knowledge and experience totally um, changes how you look at a given piece and is extremely valuable. Going forwards and backwards uh, with your timeline, uh, you are now currently pursuing and pursuing uh, actively conducting opera with the Chicago Opera. Um, uh, so, how does how does that like happen? Like, how did that come to be? What what was the process? Was it something you were wanting to pursue for a long time, or? Well, I certainly knew that one of my goals kind of in the next five to ten years was to try to get a music directorship with a, at least a mid-sized professional opera company in this country because I think there are so many possibilities and, and we really are in a golden age for opera in the United States today and it's really exciting to be part of that. Um, of course, you never know when these opportunities will come up or how it'll happen. I was in talks with Chicago Opera Theater already for a possible conducting project that ended up not panning out. But as this was happening, um, they their artistic director of a number of years left the post, and they were changing their structure and looking for a music director to take over um, the musical, all the musical aspects of the company. And I, um, they invited me to submit my materials, and it was something like a seven-part application process with, I mean, seven levels with various illuminations along the way and added materials. And ultimately, I had to come to Chicago for several days and meet with a lot of people uh, nonstop and talk to many people. And they called, I think, everybody I knew and had ever worked with. Um, <laughs> and ultimately, luckily, I got the job. And it was um, very fortunate because the what the company, where the company is, what their goals are, um, where it's going into the future aligns just perfectly with my interests and my experience and my strengths. And it's always really exciting when a position opens up that really just fits like a glove and where I have the capability to work with just such an amazing team of people to bring some really great music to Chicago and beyond. Yeah, so here's my big question is like, why opera? Uh, I, <laughs> Good question. I, I personally, and unless I'm missing something in my soul, but I can't connect and with opera. Um, I can connect with almost every other, every other type of, you know, uh, musical ensemble uh, and performance, but opera is something. So what about opera for you? And is there something you can tell the average listener to keep an eye out for when it comes to listening and uh, attending opera? I think you're missing Sure. Opera. Yeah, I'm missing something. <laughs> uh, I, I, well, I think one of the challenges with opera is that, and one of the great things about it, is that it brings all of the art forms together, right? What, what makes opera opera is that it combines symphonic music, vocal music, drama, uh, visual art, dance, everything into one. What that also means is that it's really hard to make opera really fantastic. Um, and it takes a lot of different people coming from many, many different angles. 
And so often when I talk to people that they that say they don't like opera, I, I most of the time I find that they haven't had the right opera experience because it also means that opera comes in so many shapes and sizes, many more so even than instrumental music. Uh, because with instrumental music, you have symphonic music of a smaller, bigger orchestra, but um, and then you have chamber music. And, of course, you have different genres with, of musical styles within that, but it's really those two types of contexts. In opera, in opera, it's really infinite because the quality of the productions, the type of singing, um, also really influence how you perceive the work. But for me, what I love about opera is exactly that drama and the ability to bring the art forms together. I love um, I love working with instrumentalists and I love working with orchestras, which I get to do in opera. But I also get to work with set designers and stage directors and people who work behind the scenes making all of this stuff happen. I, I get to connect what I'm doing to political and social events and history and culture uh, and literature. And I also love languages. And in opera, I get to work in a variety of languages regularly and think about poetry and uh, think about history and how the story that we're telling on the stage relates to our listeners today. And do you find that you, you've probably seen a very broad range of listenership at, at each of these performances? And we've always had as a as a genre a really difficult time getting younger listeners into the seats. And, and as you see them come in, do you think that they can or, or want to or desire to relate to the same drama and the same emotion that maybe an older generation does? Yeah, I actually find that in opera, the um, average listener is much younger and that the level of diversity is often much wider than it is in the symphonic realm uh, because there are so many ins into the art form. Um, of course, it depends on the style of the production and on the genre. Uh, one of the problems is that some of the, the best-known opera companies in this country are also the ones that put on very traditional productions. Uh, which could be fantastic and beautiful, but uh, to which some people may relate better than others. Um, and uh, what, one of the things I love actually about working at Chicago Opera Theater is that we focus on performing uh, works that are really relevant to our world, and that includes a great deal of contemporary music, and there's so much phenomenal opera being written in this country today. Um, there are also, I work with a number of companies in New York, especially, like Beth Morrison Projects, for instance, with whom I'll be working next week, who do a lot of work that crosses genres and crosses barriers in really innovative ways and performs opera in really unusual spaces, but does so also on a very high level artistically. Um, and I think, well, again, one of the great things about opera is that there's so many possibilities as to where you can go with it and where you can take it and what the word opera even means. We need to do more episodes on opera now. I thought you know, <laughs> Absolutely. I'm missing out. Uh, so, so before we really dive into uh, a project you created uh, that I think is just absolutely brilliant, are there other, other performances coming up for Chicago Opera Theater that you really want to uh, let our listeners know about um, or tell their friends about that, that you're really excited that's coming up? Yeah, we just released our season for next year. Uh, which I'm very excited about. We have a new initiative called the Vanguard Initiative that includes a composer-in-residency program and promotes 
contemporary American opera especially. Um, so we'll be working with living composers regularly. We will be um, creating an avenue for young composers to really learn the craft of writing opera, which is so different from uh, writing symphonic music or, or choral or vocal music separately on its own. Um, and then in addition, we are performing three operas, big major productions that season, and along with some smaller ones and some workshops. But um, one of the things I'm really excited about is Jake Heggie's Moby Dick. If you're not familiar with that opera, check it out. It's amazing. Jake Heggie is um, an American opera composer, perhaps the most prolific and most performed American opera composer today. Um, And uh, he wrote an... Moby Dick premiered in 2010, so it's quite recent, but it's already been done by many, many companies around the country and now the world... And it's a really grand opera on a huge scale. And the orchestra is the ocean and the whale, and you have a big dance chorus on stage. But it's also um, very contemporary in many ways, and the kinds of themes that it grapples with are very, very contemporary. I mean, it revolves around Captain Ahab, the uh, crazy ruler who is following his own uh, captain, who is following his own... um, a whimsy and his own uh, sense of revenge towards this whale um, and in the process getting this crew of Peacock, his ship, to go along for the ride. Well, that's, there are, the, the woman who has taken a lot of the uh, box-to-box photos that we put up is a, probably the biggest fan of that tale that I've ever known, but she'll be excited. Lauren, uh, yeah. Lauren Hodger, uh, Hodger is a huge fan, but I think we've just found uh, at least three new fans for this opera. This is Great. Amazing. Well, I, I recommend checking it out. There are a lot of YouTube clips on um, uh, uh, past productions of it that are really effective. So. Awesome. And so now this is the one I got most excited about because I think this is such a brilliant concept. Uh, you created, and I don't, I'm not sure how many years back this is up, but the Refugee Orchestra Project. Yeah. Um, and this is in New York. Uh, you created this. Correct. So our first performance was actually in Boston, but we also do a lot of work in New York. And right now we have a residency at National Sawdust, which is yes. a performance uh, this past weekend with. Yeah, we just had a performance on Sunday, actually. It just came from there. Um, and National Sawdust is this music venue that is kind of a cross-disciplinary collaborative incubator for uh, for the arts. Um, but uh, the Refugee Orchestra Project itself is an organization that features music uh, by refugee composers and, and performances by refugee musicians to showcase the incredible contributions that people from around the globe have made to our culture and continue to make to our culture. So, for instance, many people, even with with things like and many people don't realize that God Bless America was written by a refugee, Irving Berlin. Um, and Irving Berlin also wrote so many of our all-American Christmas songs and all kinds of other things that we see as just such Americana. But he came to this country as a refugee. Um, and there are many uh, major compo- standard composers as well. Donna Zetti is one example who were refugees at some point in their lives and had to escape uh, their country of birth due to political or other persecution. Um, and, of course, our own country is um, is made on the backs of immigrants, and our culture has been built uh, from the cultures of, of individuals who have fled elsewhere to seek a better life here. 
Um, and so when I started this organization, it was um, at the start of the refugee crisis in Europe a few years ago, and I realized that many of my own friends and colleagues didn't know that I came to this country as a refugee, because it's just not something people talk about normally or that comes up uh, lightly in conversation. And I wanted to do something to help showcase just how important people from around the world are to the United States, because to me, that is one of the most beautiful things about America the fact that we all come from somewhere else and we come together to make something really great uh, out of all of the different things that we bring here. It's, it's an incredible cause that you, you developed and this. And um, now that you are even more West, are, are you still planning on directing and conducting the refugee orchestra? Or are you, are you trying to yeah, absolutely. pass on, no pun intended? Please. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll absolutely be continuing with uh, with our OP, with the Refugee Orchestra Project. Uh, we actually have not been, although we it started in Boston and went to New York, we actually perform in cities all over the country, all over. We recently did a big concert in Washington, D.C. as well. Um, and so we can continue to do this. And although I will be based um, largely in Chicago, I, I'll be splitting my time between Chicago and New York next year. And I travel so much that it actually is not, it's just part of the job for me. It's not as good built into your your professional life. Yeah, so so the location at this point in my career doesn't really matter because I will fly to it and and make it happen. So people can learn more about the Refugee Orchestra Project at Um, refugeeorchestraproject.org. And... uh, so let's talk about, okay, we've established, we've gone through from five years old to your current career, um, and you are, um, are there stigmas, or is there, are there trouble, or are there still, you know, is there difficulty being a female professional conductor in the classical realm? It's a really complicated question. I mean, one thing that it might be useful for your listeners to know is some context, Right now, I am the only female music director of a major opera company in this country. That's uh, the only one out of over 50 opera companies. Um, that's a problem, and that's really unfortunate. In the symphonic world, I think it's Marin Alsop is really the only one, and and in the top 30-something or 40-something companies, I don't know the exact number. Um, so it's similar. Um, so there certainly are very you women in music director positions um, in both the symphonic realm and especially in the opera realm. And that, of course, is a sign of something not being right. Um, what that something is uh, becomes much more complicated, of course. Um, and conducting as in any other kind of leadership position, you encounter some um, assumptions or prejudices that people have. Um, a lot of it, in my opinion, is also um, has to do with how many women pursue a professional conducting path also in the first place. Um, in my experience, of I, when I was younger, there were more. But by the time I got to graduate school, it was very few and then fewer and fewer from there. And that, again, has to do with just getting opportunities. And in my personal experience, what I found is once I'm on the podium, if, if you're on the podium and you know what you're doing, nobody cares if you're female or male, whether you're black or white or green or whatever. 
Um, as long as you are totally prepared and you have strong musical ideas and you're able to bring people together um, well as a conductor. But I think the hardest thing is getting those opportunities in the first place because uh, there are so many talented people out there. There is only one conductor per orchestra, so it's not very many. Um, And I think often the people who are encouraged to be on the podium in the first place are people who meet our idea or our assumption of what a conductor is. And I have to say, even for me as a conductor, as a female conductor, if someone says the word conductor, I imagine something that's probably really similar to what most of your listeners imagine. It's a Lenny Bernstein type um, guy with big hair or whatever. So that's my image of a conductor. It's usually an older white male. And so especially as a younger female or beyond that, if you then... Um, come from some different ethnicity, I think it it does become difficult to just get your foot in the door and to get the opportunity to be on the podium so that, one, you can get the experience you need, and two, that you can show that you know what you're doing. But I think once you're there, if you're good, then no no one cares and people forget what gender you are or what anything else about you. One thing I've always wondered is, um, and this goes, Kevin, this is for you as well. You know how when bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones would get up on stage, there would be a persona. The Stones and the Beatles were actually really great friends, but they had to admit a persona on stage to sell that that brand. As a conductor, both you, Lydia, and you, Kev, do you do you have a stage persona? Mm-hmm. And Lydia, you were just talking about the kind of Bernstein uh, look. Is there a different? <laughs> put on on stage? Good question. I, For me, and I think it's different for different people, I'm sure that some of my colleagues approach this very differently. For me, absolutely no. I have found that the only way, and maybe this is just because I'm a terrible actress, but I have found that the only way uh, for me to really make great music and to make, uh, to, to really work well with my colleagues is just to be genuine and to be myself. Um, whatever that means. And even if it's, it's not what they might expect from a conductor, but who knows what that even is because everyone has different expectations and different uh, backgrounds that they're coming from. But to me, it's just about being genuine and not even focusing on yourself. In my experience, if as a conductor you start worrying about yourself and how you appear, um, then all the stuff that matters disappears. You have to be focused on the music. You have to be focused on helping the people in front of you make great music, um, because as soon as it becomes about you, the the music disappears. Well, so well said. We'll keep you on for more podcasts. So you're way more eloquent than us combined. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, kind of just tying everything in and wrapping it up. I'm just I'm I'm really curious. You've done so much with your career so far, and yet there's still so many years to go. What mm-hmm. is it, some of those, those crowning moments that, that just make you say, like, this is insanely incredible. I get to do this for a living. Well, certainly uh, my work with Chicago Opera Theater. I just love this company. I'm so excited to be here. But there are so many. And, you know, often they're not in the places you'd expect. Um, of course, I love having the opportunity to work with some of these major companies that have spectacular musicians and to work with some of the top musicians in our field in general. That's really exciting. But sometimes um, 
My favorite moments come in the most unexpected places. So, for instance, I spent about five years working with the Boston Youth Symphony Orchestra in Boston. And that was one of my favorite jobs just because those kids would play on such a high level. And they would do Rite of Spring and Shostakovich symphonies and just major repertoire and big operas also. Um, and to hear them perform those works on a really, really high level uh, was often ex- extremely exciting. Um, but then, of course, I'm I, again. I'm really fortunate to work with many artists who have been in the field for 50 or more years, so longer than I, much longer than I have been alive, uh, who really um, have a much wider perspective on music making. Um, that then hopefully maybe by the time I'm their age, I might have that much perspective. But even then, mine will be totally different because I'm growing up in a different era and I, I'm learning my craft in a totally different era. So uh, to me, it's that ability to work with really, really top artists. I've done a lot of work uh, with the Boston Symphony. I, I, of course, mastered for them a bunch. And before that, when I was still in graduate school, I um, uh, got to perform with them as a singer um, in the chorus of the Boston Symphony. And, uh, for instance, being on that stage with some of these greatest conductors in the world. And sometimes that would be a spectacular experience. Sometimes actually it wouldn't be. And you never knew which one would happen uh, because human beings are human beings, but each experience is different. Yes, they are. All right. So, Lydia, uh, we have we end every podcast episode with three questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are completely opinionated. Um, but actually, I do have a question before I ask. Do you drink beer? Um, sometimes. I'm not a huge beer drinker, and, I, and when I do drink beer, I'm very snobby about it. Okay. Um. <laughs> then we'll be all set. Um, so uh, the way we finish every podcast is our box-to-box quiz. Um, Matt will say the question number. I will say the question. Because if anything... If Gilderland High School taught us anything, it cost us the count of three. It's a, so... Um, it's, uh, <laughs> So um, we'll ask you that, and then give us the first thing that comes to mind. Like, no hesitation whatsoever. All right. <laughs> All right. All right, here we go. Lydia, question number one. So uh, what beer best describes your personality? Uh, oh, I don't even know. Three philosophers, I think, one of their beers. From uh, maybe raison d'être. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. All right, number two. Number two, completely opposite direction. Uh, what superpower would you have if you could? Oh, you know Hermione's time-turning clock thing in Harry Potter that allows her to be three places at once and get everything That's- done and learn a lot more stuff? I would be one of those. <laughs> well, I love how practical you went with it. That's, that's <laughs> No one's ever gone that route into the realm of magic. That's no. Fantastic. <laughs> All right, well, uh, Closing out number three. Number three. Uh, so who in the history of time would you want us to have see you conduct? To have see me conduct? Yeah, to watch you conduct. To, to, attend, to attend you, attend a concert you conduct. I think, I, well, only if they give me feedback and give me lots of ideas and I have a chance to c- communicate with them during this time. Um, I think it would be Mahler, Gustav Mahler. I would love to have Mahler in one of my rehearsals of Mahler's work telling me about how he would achieve things and how he would do things differently and to learn from him and uh, and to understand how he meant for everything to sound. I love I love Mahler's 
on program notes. Uh, if, oh yeah. If there, there's so much detail, like so, so, so <laughs> ridiculous amount. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's incredible. Uh, Lydia Yakovskaya, thank you so much for your yeah, time and for being on this episode of Box to Box. Thank you both so much. So great to talk to you both again. That was honestly that was one of my favorite interviews of all time. That was It's so incredible to just you know, imagine even someone you knew just for a few years in high school and just saying, you know, where are they now type thing. Yeah. And it just knowing that they are kind of setting the standard now for an industry that has needed a change for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and what's funny is that I don't think we intentionally did this, but uh, Troy kind of fits into this equation here. Troy, New York, if you know it, uh, when we were first going up there, Kevin and I um, performed in the Empire State Youth Orchestra growing up, which our hometown hall was the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall, which was pointed out to us the other night. It's not a particularly inventive name, but... It is internationally renowned for its acoustics. Yeah, it's one of the best music venues, as far as acoustic music venues in the world. Yeah, people, interna- uh, international recording artists will go there to uh, put albums down. It is, uh, we were very, very lucky to play in that historical hall. But Troy at that time, when we were first going there, you know, we would go to rehearsal and then parents were telling us, you do not leave the hall, you do not walk the streets, you do not go Anywhere, because Troy... And you uh, do not collect $200. Like, like Schenectady, like Albany, uh, had a bit of a rough patch in the mid-1950s, uh, you know, 1960s in upstate New York. Uh, once GE and Alco left the area, that was uh, the, the Tri-City area kind of took a bit of a dive. So Troy was rough, but they have seen a, a market rebound. Um, public markets, great bars. Uh, there's that wine bar we went to with Mom and Dad. And there's another one that I've loved called The Shop. It's an old hardware store yes. turned into a cocktail bar. I love so. that. And we talked about Rare Form briefly. They they are a small uh, craft beer brewery that's uh, popped up down on 4th Street. And then there's Brown. Now, Brown's Brewing's been around since uh, 1993. And they, I don't even think we clocked them. You know, craft beer wasn't a thing. No, yeah, and if we, if we, we went, it was for the fact that it was a pub. It was a pub-style yeah. food nearby with lots of seating so that yeah. families could go. And it, was, it wasn't clocked as, as a beer place. It was a brew pub. It was, it, was a, it was a restaurant that made their own beer. And that's yes. all we really clocked it as. Now, they have done a, a, they've seen the rise and fall of a lot of different styles of beer. They have now also released their uh, a whole new rebrand of Can Lines. And if you look at the artwork... It's it's not something that I would have gravitated to immediately, but really geometric, really earthy, and yet bright color palette. I from a design side, I dig it. I don't know yeah. what your thoughts on that, but um, recently they've re- uh, released a revolution series. So, these, so what does that mean? Well, it's uh, they're normally in twelve ounce cans, but the revolution series are all released in four pack, sixteen ounce. Cool. Uh, are this, they, or do you think it's probably trying to follow the trend of what the the sixteen ounce can is? Yeah, they, they, which is working for breweries. Why not? You know yeah. that that's uh, you know just for the job at Shipyard we released Finder, uh, yeah. our our New England IPA in sixteen ounce cans, and um, that's what when you go to a beer shelf, it's really daunting to go to a place like Whole Foods or Hannaford and to see more choice than you've ever imagined. And where do you begin to pick it out? A lot of times it comes in the style, comes in the can art, um, and 
if you're not up on beer, but you see everyone doing these four packs, honestly, that's a really attractive thing to be able to mm-hmm. up on that wagon. So um, the Revolution series is is a chance for them to explore a bit. So this this is a double IPA that we're drinking today. It's called Intonation. We're going to talk about it in a second. But the other thing that uh, they've done with the, the rest of the series, they've done a double oatmeal stout. Uh, they've done a burst IPA, a black cherry stout. So it's, this isn't just hopping on the IPA train. This is... Uh, this is more. They they've been known to do a full run. They've done browns and lagers. They've done everything. So it's nice to it's nice to see them try something a little bit different. The intonation was a super rare batch as well. I didn't know this when we bought it. But again, intonation. Uh, you've heard us drop the term before. It it kept why didn't it's you simple. define this? Playing in tune, not sucking <laughs> at what you do. Basically, basically like playing the right note. Uh, singing the right note, performing the right note, uh, yeah. and, uh, and not even being a quarter step off, just being spot on. Yeah. That's what intonation really dives. It's nothing about tone as much; it's more about the, the accuracy proper... of pitch. That's the that's that's the definition. Correct. If I had a pair of glasses, I would now push them yeah. up my. I nose. do, so I'll do it for you. <laughs> the uh, um, this so this is a double IPA. If you do find it, snatch it up again. They're in four packs of sixteen ounce cans. So this is is. This double IPA is, uh, it's got a higher gravity, so it's got a boosted malt base. On the can, it says piney, resinous, and juicy flavors. I'll be honest, like I had to, you saw me, like I, I was sniffing this one for a long time. And I try not to be up myself about beers. I try to objectively get what it's offering, but yeah, not think too much about it. I got a lot of, I can't, and I may, maybe something was activating. I was getting like, caramel and it was weird because i've never picked that up in an ipa uh, really yeah yeah it was i mean you saw me i was yeah. i had to like double check triple check quadruple check just because i wanted to make sure i was smelling something but it it was good and once you actually started tasting it yeah you could you were getting that do kind you, of juice here's bomb. a question do you think it has something to do with the age of the beer was it an older batch that could have Maybe from sitting. This or... was only released. Well, and again, and and I know people really like their IPAs fresh nowadays, you know, yeah. especially the New England styles. Any of these hazy guys, um, you, you see people in the beer store and they're like, "Oh my god, this is a month old." What are you? Yeah. Like, that's that's normal. That's know? normal. That's, that's, okay. You know, when we were drink growing up, you know, you gotta if you found a thing of Newcastle from like two years before, you sit there and be like, "All right, here we go." So. The standards have changed for better, for worse. We can get into that another episode. But um, the th- this one's uh, dry hopped with Citra, Amarillo, and Mosaic, and and you probably heard Citra and Mosaic most nowadays. That those are the two really, especially in the New England style. Hops. Yeah, exactly. So the and they they do get once you started taking this down, you got the nice dry hop finish. It was really lovely. Um, the, there was a word that they dropped. So here we go. Another bit of useless knowledge, right? Uh, a word that they dropped, which I had never, ever heard before. And it is, they call it a supremely drinkable. Uh, those aren't the new words. We know what those mean. Uh, Lupulin bomb. Now, I had never heard the word lupulin. So I go right to uh, Urban Dictionary, which as we all know is the center of all things. Lupulin. Yeah, it's actually, I didn't go to Urban Dictionary. I just went to dictionary.com. Um, lupulin, uh, oh, yeah, lupulin is a bitter yellowish powder found on glandular hairs. That's a great word, glandular, beneath the scales of the flowers of the female hop plant. There you go, folks. One more time, just so that you can repeat it at a cocktail party. 
a bitter yellowish powder found on glandular hairs beneath the scales of the flowers of the female hop plant. I do feel there should be a comma in that definition somewhere. I feel um, that this completely made up, that word's made up. I feel like this is just nonsense, but I know it's not. I, it's, if for any botanist out there, I'm sure that they, it's, it's they can testify that All this right. is an actual thing. Um, so yeah, this they're they're calling this a drinkable lupulin bomb. So apparently, like, you know, like the 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 shake on uh, on weed. Now they're they can take uh, with hops. They do the same thing with hops. Uh, so I I've never seen this before. I didn't know they were utilizing this to give a more kind of punch a, a punch or yeah yeah. I, I, I maybe that's what I was tasting. That might have been what I was tasting. I have no idea because I I couldn't peg it otherwise. Um, so there you have it. If you do find this double IPA, honestly, I I don't know if I'd go out. And I was just going to ask you, again. would you get it again? I yeah, I I I don't know if I would. No, I wouldn't. I'm going to say it right now. Okay. It was good, but I uh, I wouldn't go out and go it again. I, I'd I'd go something else. I'm going to give one to to uh, to Browns though. There is one of their their original beers, which I still like when I go back home, and I hate fruity beers. But their cherry raspberry ale, it's been one of their flagship beers since they started. You know what? I forgot about. And that it's like it's a little fruity, but it's easy. It's it's super drinkable. It's it's not it's not too sweet. Um, really, the the that you get more of the raspberry than the cherry taste on uh, on the finish. Um, would but, you say it's uh, primarily summertime, or would you drink it year round? No, I, I well, mm-hmm. I'd say spring, spring, summer. Okay, all right. So, so we're coming into the we're, season. We're in the season right now, but it's, it is a year round, um, year round beer for them. But do you know? Check out their website. Uh, that you can find them at uh, brownsbrewing.com. Um, but in the meantime, we'll see you next week. And this has been another episode of Bach to Bach. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>